You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Romans chapter 8. You know, every time I preach a sermon series, it's like I embody it. It's like I experience whatever it is I'm preaching on. And so the last couple weeks has certainly been filled with suffering, uh, a lot of random suffering, and, um, or it appears to be random, as we'll talk about today. And uh, I almost started feeling sorry for myself. And then I remember that uh, in two weeks, Adam's preaching on death. And so I started thinking, I have it bad, but uh, we should really start praying for you right now, probably, as you prepare for that message. And so Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 18 through verse 39 is where we're going to be. So let's read it together. Paul says, I consider the suffering of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also now graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercede, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress... Or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or sword, or danger, as it is written for your sake. We are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor debt, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together one more time. Father, we believe, but as we have already been singing, we need you to help our unbelief. There are people that are in this room who have suffered greatly. There are people who are in the middle of suffering. There are people who know those who are suffering. All of us will again experience suffering. And in those moments, it's very easy for our eyes to just go to what we can see rather than to put our hope in who you are what you have done for us, and what you promise you will do. I pray that right now through the power of your Holy Spirit that you will take this text and make it alive in our hearts and transform us for our good and your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
Hey, show of hands. How many of you wore glasses growing up, prescription glasses? Let me see a show of hands. Okay, quite a few of you. Uh, of yous, of you. Um, we could probably talk about the disadvantages of growing up wearing glasses for hours, couldn't we? I mean, from things like being called four eyes uh, to going on that first date and your glasses fogging up whenever you step out of the car and you're trying to be cool, you know, but it's like you can't even see the person that you're on a date with. Um, there's all sorts of cons to growing up with glasses. And I remember probably one of the the greatest disadvantages that I think I experienced growing up with prescription glasses was trying to live an active lifestyle without actually like breaking the glasses themselves. And I remember uh, one Christmas, my uh, parents bought me these Georgetown Hoya basketball shorts. That was back whenever Allen Iverson played for the Hoyas. And remember the answer, Allen Iverson, right? Everybody wanted to be uh, Allen Iverson. And so they bought me, you know, like the shorts, the jersey. And I remember going back to school. And there was this one girl in our class, uh, uh, particularly, that I always wanted to date. I wanted to, uh, her to be my girlfriend. I remember she wrote me a letter one time that says, I see you more like a brother than a boyfriend, which is like, you know, like you never want to hear that. But I was like, okay, I still like held out hope that I can maybe convince her to be my girlfriend. And so we're going to play basketball one day, and she walks into the gym. And I'm thinking, this is my chance. I got my Georgetown Hoya gear on, right? I can impress her with my mad skills. And so she sits down with her friends and waves at me, and I wave at her. I'm like, I see you, girl, you know? And so it's like... Um, <laughs> And so, like, you know, I, I, I start playing some ball with the guys, and I'm actually doing pretty good for me, you know. I mean, I, I'm hitting a few threes. I mean, I'm grabbing the cookie out of the cookie jar. That's the right th- uh, form, right? Right form, okay. And so, professional basketball player in the first row. Always good to have another athlete in the house. And so, um, and so anyways, uh, so, yeah, and so I, I'm doing pretty good doing my thing. And I, I go up for a layup at some point. We're all still kind of warming up shooting. I go up for a layup and I'm going to do a little finger roll into the net. And when I do from out of nowhere, a basketball just drills me right in the face. When that happens, my glasses go flying off into what felt like a thousand different pieces. I mean, I had lens going here, this little ear guard going here. Uh, you might remember this, Mom. I ended up having to like tape up my glasses, right? I mean, like true story in order to like to keep them together. And, and to make it even more humiliating, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe she didn't notice. But I go over there to pick up my glasses, you know, and I put them on, they're like this. You know, it's like, it's like, are my glasses straight? They're like, oh yeah, man, your friend's like, they look great, man, look good on you. It's like, really? They feel kind of awkward. But like, uh, I, you know, I go to pick them up, I think, well, maybe she didn't see. But of course, when I look over, the girl who I'm trying to impress is laughing, her friends are laughing, and I knew in that moment, not only was I humiliated, not only was I in pain, not only was my glasses broken, but I'd ruined any chance that I'd had of ever making this girl my girlfriend. And the reason I share that is because I started thinking about that this past week. I started thinking about the reality that when it comes to life, suffering is a lot like that basketball. In that, when it comes to life, we can be running around, enjoying things. We can kind of feel like we're in a rhythm. We're hitting our shots. All seems to be going well. And then, bam, from out of nowhere, we're hit with suffering. And it changes absolutely everything. Anybody here have a clue what I'm talking about today? Maybe for some of you it was a call when you found out that a family or friend was in a bad wreck. Uh, Maybe for others it was a report from a doctor that said it's cancer. Uh, Maybe for others it was whenever you went to get an ultrasound and you found out there was no heartbeat from your baby. Maybe it was a text message from a spouse that says, you know, I need a change of scenery. I need somebody else. Maybe it was a conversation with a boss who, who says, you know what, we're going to have to let you go. Or maybe like me, yesterday it was walking into your house and, and expecting it to be cool, but instead it's warm and your air conditioner has quit working and you find you're about to be hit with a big bill, right? Suffering is coming. 
It's coming in all different shapes and sizes and forms. And when it comes, listen, guys, it often comes unannounced and without any warning whatsoever. Therefore, because this is true, Paul says, I want to help prepare you for suffering. I want to help prepare you for pain so that when, not if, when suffering hits, when the pain comes into your life, rather than it making you bitter, I'm going to show you how it can actually make you better. Rather than the pain wrecking your life, I'm going to show you how with the right perspective it can actually refine your life. And in order for this to happen, the first thing that Paul wants us to see is that if we are going to suffer well, we need to come to reality and realize that all of us will, in fact, suffer. Paul says in verse 18, I consider the sufferings of the present time. Paul says, I consider there is suffering in my life and in the life of others. This is important for you to focus on this morning because some of you, you thought when you started following Jesus that your life was going to get easier. You thought that when you started following Jesus that you were going to get healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, and yet that has not happened. And maybe for some of you, you feel like that because life has been hard, that maybe you've missed something somewhere along the way, or God is angry at you, or you're doing something wrong, the formula, you not somehow have got it just right. And because of that, maybe you're sitting here and you're even wondering, like, I mean, like, like, man, should I even continue to follow after Jesus? I mean, it feels like that, that Jesus has somehow gone back on some sort of promise that he has made to us. But yet, whenever we look in Scripture, we read things like in Acts 14.22 that says, It is through many tribulations and trials that we must enter into the kingdom of God. I think about John the Baptist. Jesus said there was none greater than John the Baptist. None greater born of woman than him. He was so faithful to Jesus, doing exactly what God had called him to do. And yet he goes to prison for preaching the gospel. He sends a message to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, if you're the savior, how about you come save me from prison? What does Jesus do? He sends back an Isaiah benediction to John the Baptist, leaves off the part about the prisoners going free, saying, I am the savior. You're going to die in prison. And so John the Baptist has his head cut off. I think about my own life. My son, my firstborn son, Wyatt, when he was eight days old, goes in for a routine circumcision. We didn't know it at the time, but it probably contracted a bleeding disorder that I had. And he nearly bleeds out from a circumcision. I remember eight days old. Right, Chuck, you were there. Parents were there. Luke, you were there for this. As we sat in the waiting room after the doctor had just told us, hey, there's a 50-50 chance your son's going to die on the operating table. He's young, he's already eaten, he's, there's a chance he's going to aspirate, he's going to die, but we have to do surgery right now or he's going to bleed out. Man, that moment, my grief and my pain was as real as my left hand. Some of you have been there. And in those moments, the temptation is to shake your fist at God and say, where are you? As if he promised us that we would never suffer. When in fact, he promises the complete opposite. In John 16, Jesus says, in this life, you will have troubles. Because Adam and Eve ate of the tree, sin entered into the picture, and when sin entered into the picture, so did death, so did disease, so did destruction, so did dysfunction, and all kinds of suffering. Therefore, Jesus says, in this life, we will all suffer. So Paul, starting out in our section, says we need to consider this. Paul says, I consider the suffering of this present time. In verse 20, he says, I consider how creation is now subjected to futility. 
I consider how creation is subjected to now this, this meaningless and this feeling of emptiness. In verse 21, it says, I consider how creation is in bondage uh, to corruption. I consider how because of sin, stuff in this life now falls apart. I was thinking about my wife and I's compost pile behind our house. And uh, we have a compost pile to feed our garden. And, and when we get done eating our meal, a lot of times we'll take our scraps out to the compost pile. And whenever we put our food on the pile at the time, the food is still good. But within like 24 hours or 48 hours, it's rotting, it's decaying, it's falling apart. And Paul says, I'm considering how because of sin in verse 21, this is happening in creation. He says, I'm considering in verse 22 how because we live in a fallen world that now all of creation is groaning like a woman in labor pains waiting for the day that this will all be put to right. Paul says, I'm considering, I'm not trying to sweep it under the rug, suffering is real. But Paul's not being a Debbie Downer because if you look again in verse 18, he says, Though I'm considering the sufferings of this world, he says, I'm considering that the suffering of the world doesn't even compare to the glory that's going to be revealed. Paul was a man who suffered more than any of us will ever suffer. When he chose to follow after Jesus, he lost his friends, he lost his job, he lost his, his wealth. When he continued to follow after Jesus, as a result, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned. Eventually, he would be killed. And yet, this man, in the midst of his suffering, says, when I think about the sufferings of this present world, I realize it's not even worth comparing to what's coming. The pain that I am experiencing right now does not compare to the good times that is ahead for me. What I'm losing I'm losing a lot, but it will not compare to what I am gaining in the future because of Christ. Some of you say, well, that's great. But how in the world does focusing on this future help me right now in the present? And I want you to just consider this illustration for a moment. Imagine there were two guys who get hired at the same factory to work the same job, the same amount of hours. But imagine the boss comes up to person A and he says, at the end of the year, you will get $10,000. And then he goes to person B who's working the same hours, same job, and says, you, person B, at the end of the year, will get $10 million. How do you think that's going to change the way those two people work? Well, person A is going to be working this hard, tedious job. And they're going to be saying, you know what? I'm not sure this is worth it. I mean, this is hard work. This, I, I'm not sure I'm going to continue. And even if he does, he's going to complain and be bitter and angry the whole way. But person B, who's going to be getting the $10 million, what's he going to be doing? He's just saying, man, this actually isn't so bad. This is actually a pretty good gig. I mean, I, 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 I am perfectly fine with what I'm doing because why? Why? Because what you believe about the future does shape how you live in the present. And therefore, if you believe what the Bible says about the future, guys, not in your heads, listen to me. If you believe in your heart what the Bible says about your future, and you see that what you're going to receive is far greater than $10 million, and that one day you're going to enter into a world where suffering is going to be no more, if you believe that one day you're going to receive the glorious inheritance that belongs to Christ, that will belong to you, and you will just enjoy the overflow of God's perfections forever, listen, that doesn't make life easy, but I promise you it will make it easier. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, 
Not if you suffer a little while, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. This was such good news to me even yesterday morning. I woke up, heart was filled with anxiety over... um, there was a family that had been involved in our church the last couple of years that left and went to another church in Jonesboro. And, and just a little behind the scenes, like people leave and go places all the time in churches. Like I had a pastor tell me a long time ago, hey, Jared, if someone left someone else's church to come to your church, they're going to leave your church to go to another church. Like it just happens, right? But it always stings as a pastor because you always think, is there something else I could have done? And in that moment, yesterday morning when I woke up, I just felt this major anxiety because I had this voice going in my head that basically says, They left because you're not good enough. They left because you're a failure. And I almost went into self-pity. And then I remembered this verse right here in 1 Peter. And I was reminded of the truth from God's word. That though, yes, I am a failure. That God never fails. Ever. That he is always faithful. He is always sure. He never once has made a promise, at least to me, that I've seen him not complete or could be good on, and it promises right here in First Peter that one day, though I will suffer in this life, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish me. And the same is true for you today. Maybe for some of you, you hear that, and you're like, well, that's all I needed to hear today. That's good, yes. But for others, there's a little bit of you, maybe it's like, man, okay, that's all great. Pie in the sky and the sweet by and by, Jared. I appreciate the, the, the future hope, but what about a present hope? Because I've got cancer now. I'm grieving now. I've got pain now. So what in the world can you do for me today? And Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Because in verse 28, after talking in verses 18 through 23, he says, yes, we are in this waiting period and we have to learn to be patient for the revealing of whenever God makes all things right. But in the meantime, while we wait, here's the promise we have from God's word. Verse 28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This, I would say, is one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. One of the most memorized verses in all of the Bible. And often one of the most quoted verses in the middle of suffering in all of the Bible. And yet I would say it's also one of the most misinterpreted in all of the Bible. Whenever God says, or when Paul says that God will work all things out for our good, oftentimes what you will be told this means is that God is like some sort of cosmic state farm agent. Okay? Some of you have seen the state farm commercials, right? And state farm's great, by the way. It's awesome. And so... um, if you have seen those commercials, right, what do the commercials say, right? These guys or these gals get in trouble, then what do they do? Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, right? State Farm agent appears, rescues them out of the trouble, gets them wherever they need to be safely. Some people think like that's the way it is with God. They think that this verse is saying that when you get in trouble, when you encounter suffering, you just pray to God, and he will, in that moment, if he is who he says he is, he'll deliver you from that trouble. Right then and there on the spot. It's not the way it works. That's not what this passage is saying. 
What this passage is saying is not saying that God will deliver you from every single ounce of trouble and suffering you will experience right there in the moment. What it is saying is that he will take your troubles and he'll take your suffering. And if you trust him, he will work even that bad, horrific stuff together for your good. And what in the world does it mean that he'll work it together for your good? Some of the people would tell you this. Here's what it means, brother. Hey, your spouse left you. Sister, your husband left you. God's going to work it out for your good. He's just got someone better for you, girl. Right? Or, 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 or you lost that job. They fired you for no good reason. Well, God's just got a better paying job for you out there. They ain't even worth it. God's got someone way better for you out there. Have you ever heard something like that? That's what people will say. That's not what Paul's talking about here. When Paul says that God will work all things together for your good, he tells us what he means in verse 29. What he says is not that God will give you necessarily a better spouse or a better house or a better paying job, but what he will do is far better than that because when it says he'll work all things out for your good, verse 29 says he will work all things out, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Why? For the purpose of conforming you more into the image of Jesus. And there is nothing better than that. We've been in this series, we've been talking all year long about what it means to be a disciple, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus. That's our goal, guys, if you're a disciple of Christ. And then do what he did. And we've been putting the spiritual formation paradigm on the screen for you. I don't know if we have a shot of it. Yeah, there it is. And what we've said is, in order to be like Jesus, you have to be committed to gospel-centered teaching. You have to practice the ways of Jesus. You have to live in community, in the power of the Holy Spirit. But in order to be like Jesus, to be transformed in his image, we said it takes time. And it also takes suffering. This is what Paul is saying here. God does not waste your suffering. Even though pain at times feels like that basketball that's coming up just randomly upside your head. And it feels like suffering is pointless. It feels like it's purposeless. According to Romans 8, guys, you've got to get this today. According to Romans 8, there are no accidents. There are no mistakes. And therefore, if you will love God, if you will trust God, according to Paul, nothing that comes into your life will come into your life. Listen, guys, nothing will come into your life apart from the direct permission of an all-powerful, all-loving God who, if you will trust him, will work all things out for your good according to his purpose. This is not saying, by the way, that God is like a first responder, just to be clear. Some people hear this verse and say, okay, so what that means then is like there's suffering in the world and God just reacts to it and tries to like fix it after everything happens. Some of you remember me telling the story about whenever my brother had a seizure when I was in ninth grade. I was in the bathtub, went under water, took in all this water. My mom woke me up. She said, your brother's not breathing. He's not breathing. She's calling 911. Immediately I go into the bathroom. I pull him out of the water and I start CPR on him to try to save his life. Some of you think that's the way God is. He's asleep. That's why the suffering comes into your life. And then God's like, oh, and then he runs and just tries to fix everything. Not according to this passage and not according to the rest of the scripture. God is in control. Guys, listen. God is in control all the time. And because this is true, according to this scripture, he works out every single thing that comes into your life to conform you more into the image of Jesus. Can we just all agree? That's kind of a mind blower, isn't it? It's meant to be a warm blanket today in the midst of suffering. But for some of you, it presents more problems because you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, right? Well, what about free will? What about human responsibility? What about personal decisions? 
Because it seems like if God is this sovereign, then free will doesn't exist. And listen, what we have to understand today is though to us, on our human ground-level minds, it seems like it has to be either or. Either we have free will or God is completely in control. But according to the scripture, listen, if we're going to suffer well, we have to get this today. Yes, we have free will. Yes, our decisions matter. But God is still 100% in control of all things. And I could share, literally, guys, there's an example about every third or fourth page in the Bible. About every third or fourth page. I'll share just a few. In Judges chapter 14, this character by the name of Samson, who is just like eaten up with lust. He sees this Philistine woman who's beautiful, and he says, I want to marry her. His parents say, wait a minute, though, you you can't marry a Philistine woman. God's commanded Jews can't marry Philistines because they're idol worshipers. You You can't do that. And Samson says, you know what? I don't care what God says. She looks right in my eyes. That's what he says. And therefore, I want you to go and get her for me. The parents continue to kind of argue with him. Look at this. In Judges 14.4, it says the reason his parents argued with him is because the father and mother did not know that this marriage was from the Lord. This pursuit of this woman was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines because at that time the Philistines had ruled over Israel. What? God commanded the Jews not to marry the Philistines, but it's from the Lord? What is that all about? Well, let me tell you what it's all about. God and his sovereignty never compromises our human free will, but because he is good and because he is sovereign, he uses even the sinful choices of man, like Samson's lust, to still accomplish his purposes, which was to allow Samson to marry this woman, which ended up leading to the destruction of the Philistines before the Philistines destroyed the Israelites so that you and I could have salvation today. Pretty crazy thought, isn't it? Uh, let me give you another example. King Ahab, Second Corinthians This wicked king named King Ahab is trying to lead Israel into another war. He's been told, don't go into this war. You have no business taking Israel into this war. Eventually, a prophet comes to King Ahab and says, look, God has decreed you'll die in this war. King Ahab says, okay, I'm a little nervous about this, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. And so what does he do? He brings an ally king in with him. He dresses the ally king in in royal attire, but he himself dresses up like a common soldier, thinking that if he does that, he'll blend in and won't die. However, his plan fails. He dies. And how does he die? 2 Corinthians chapter 18, verse 33. Can we put it on the screen for you? But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel. What? So did God decree that he would die? Or was he hit at random? Yes. Some, you know, soldier got out there. I don't know know why he shoot a bow like that. And so, you know, Legolas just, you know, he pulls it out. And I don't know if he just like, ah, just shot it in the air. Where will it go? I don't know if he looked at King Ahab and thought, that guy looks kind of mean. Just a mean looking soldier and shoots at him. Ran the marrow, decreed by the Lord. God uses free will, human choices, but works it together to accomplish his purposes. Uh, One of the most famous examples in the Bible, this uh, guy by the name of Joseph, he's hated by his brothers because uh, their, their, their father loves Joseph more than the rest of them, so they sell Joseph into slavery. 
He suffers immensely. Eventually, though, he stays faithful to God. He climbs up the ranks in Egypt where he is enslaved. He becomes second in command only to Pharaoh. Eventually, there's a famine that comes in Israel. And because Joseph is in a position of power, he's able to save Israel, including his family, from the famine. And when he finally faces his brothers again face-to-face after all this happens, in Genesis 50-20, he has this famous line where he says this, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is in the business of taking the good, the bad, and the ugly, even the bad decisions of others, and working it all together to the good, according to Romans 8, 28, for the purpose of his will. One example I'll give you just from my own life is this. Why are you here this morning? You ever thought about that? Why are you here in this building right now? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because I moved back from Louisville, Kentucky to plant a church. Well, what was I doing in Louisville, Kentucky? I'd got a presidential scholarship to the Southern Seminary. How did I get a presidential scholarship to the Southern Seminary? Because a pastor that I'd worked for, Brother Bill Steger, Dr. Bill Steger, had a president there that owed him a favor and therefore gave me the presidential scholarship so I could get in. Well, what was I doing at First Baptist Church? Why was I working with Dr. Steger? Well, because the pastor before him, Scott Nethery, had met with my dad, and my dad had told him how I'd started a college ministry, and Brother Scott thought that was great, and said, okay, well, I'm just going to pay your, your son to come on here, and I'll you know, pay him to keep doing ministry. Well, how did Brother Scott know my dad? Because back in 2003, because of a bunch of bad decisions of people within the church, the, dad, or the, the church that my dad pastored at the time had a horrific split. And when this pastor, Scott Nethery, came to town and he heard about this, he went to bat for my dad. And he supported my dad. And he got to know my father. And that's how he got to know my story. Now, listen. Here's the reason I share that. Back in 2003, when that church split happened, it looked like Satan had won. My parents have suffered through that more than I could ever comprehend. And other people suffered as well. I mean, it looked like the kingdom had loss. And yet, 15 years later, none of us would be in this room today if it wasn't for that church split. Now, was that church split good? Nope. Is your cancer good? Nope. Is the death of your child good? Nope. But we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is a promise all of us can bank on today. And how can you bank on it? Because Paul goes on to tell us in verse 31, he says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How can you know God's going to work all things out for the good? Because there's no one more powerful than God. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not now graciously give us all things? How do you know God's going to work all things out for your good? Because there is no one more gracious or more generous than our God. Verse 33, who should bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How do you know God is going to work out all things for your good? 
Because of Jesus Christ, you have been declared innocent, and no one has more authority than our God. How do you know God is going to work out all things for our good? He goes on and he says this in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We regard the sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure, Paul says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death. And in case I miss anything, nothing in all of creation, including you, you're the creation. Nothing you can do or anybody else can do will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can you be certain God will work all things out for your good? Because nobody loves you more than our God. If you want to endure pain and suffering... This has to make it into your heart. It don't make it into your heart. When suffering comes, you'll become bitter. You'll become sadder. You'll become worse and worse and worse. But if this settles into your life, if you will realize that the sovereign ruler of the universe loves you unconditionally, completely, and forever, and that because of this, nothing in the world can change that, he will work all things out for your good, then I'm telling you, then and only then will you be able to suffer well. Isn't it great news to know that one day that all the suffering in this world will be done away with? All sad things will come untrue. All things will be put to right. And even until that time, right now, the suffering you're experiencing right now, no matter what it is, whether it was because of a bad decision you made or a bad decision somebody else made, God is, if you will trust him today, work it all out for your good. We're all going to be blindsided by suffering. Every one of us in here. I don't know who the next person will be. We're all going to be blindsided by suffering. And when it happens, you've got one of three choices. Either give up, get bitter, or trust Jesus and walk with him through the valley of the shadow of death. And if you will choose to trust in Jesus, what you will discover Maybe in this life, maybe in the next life, what you will discover is that he will take every single broken piece in your life and he will fit it all together for something that is more beautiful than any of us could ever imagine. And if you doubt that, if you struggle to believe that, run to the cross. Because at the cross... It looked like evil was winning out. And yet, in Acts chapter 2, we don't have time to look at the verses. In Acts 4, I can show them to you in my Bible if you want to look after this is over. In Acts 2 and Acts 4, what does it say was happening at that moment? It was God working through Herod and through Pilate and through the lawless, sinful actions of others to make sure Christ was crucified. Why? So that he could take the most horrific event in human history and turn it into the most beautiful If he's done that once before you ever lifted a finger for him, listen, guys, I promise you he'll do it over and over and isn't over and over again if you will just continue to trust him. Today we want to celebrate this truth through communion. If you are here today and you are a Christ follower, if you have trusted in God, if you love God, and by the way, no one loves God unless we first receive the love of God. If you've received the love of God and you trust him and you follow after him, you're trusting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, come and partake 
of these two stations. You have two in the front, you have two in the back, to be reminded of what we just talked about, how it's true. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, listen, if you've not stepped into this plan where God is working all things out for your good, I want to encourage you to step into it today. And you want to know how you can know God is going to work out all things for your good? Here's how you can step into that plan. By first admitting you aren't good. By admitting that you're a sinner. By admitting that you're broken. By admitting that you need Jesus Christ. And then when you trust in his life, death, and resurrection, all you have to do is just open your hands to the free gift of salvation. And you can trust that God will meet you there, and he will forgive you, and he will free you, and he will work all things out for your good.